Flag Radio, the Revolutionary Socialist Podcast, broadcasting from Aboriginal land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Indigenous land. And we're recording on Friday the 18th of March um, from various corners of uh, this place called Australia. Um, me and Liam, I'm Ros Ward and Liam Ward are in Melbourne and our guest today is uh, up in Queensland. To talk about the um, current situation in Ukraine, which is rapidly unfolding, which is why I gave a little date stamp there so that you know in case things have changed by the time you listen to this episode, disclaimer. Um, so there's been a little bit of a break between episodes. It's a crazy time. Um, I'm glad to be back recording the podcast. And thanks again to the people who support us on Patreon and your ongoing support. Patreon.com, Red Flag Radio Podcast, if you find us there. If you like these episodes, if you hear something um, today that you think is worthy of sharing around, then that's the main thing that we really do this for is to is to share different perspectives on um, heaps of different things to do with politics, theory, history, activism, um, with people who are part of the struggles that we talk about on this podcast. So Tom Bramble, our guest today, has been part of many of these struggles and is also an author of a bunch of really useful books to explain things like the history of the trade union movement in Australia, the history of the Labor Party. He's written a whole book that's the basic, um, the fundamentals of Marxism, introducing Marxism, a theory for social change. And last year we talked to Tom as the co-author of the fight for workers' power revolution and counter-revolution in the 20th century. I'll put links to, um, the Red Flag Bookshop, if you want to get hold of any of those texts. Um, and he wrote that with Mick Armstrong, who's also been on the podcast. So welcome back, Tom. Thanks for being here. Okay, let's get straight into the questions. Um, obviously, there's a lot of discussion in the mainstream media, a lot of analysis about what is behind the decision, the Russian decision to launch this military invasion. There's things like you know, the deep psychoanalysis of Putin, which apparently is called Putinology. There's uh, some discussion of, you know, Russian imperialism. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what that means. Can you tell us your take on what is going on here and why? Yeah, I think it's not an obviously straightforward answer to that question, Roz. Um, uh, the, probably the best writer, I believe, in Russia right now is a guy called Tony Wood working at Princeton who recently wrote a book called Russia Without Putin. Uh, and I've read a few interviews with him recently, and he says, well, actually, I'm a bit flabbergasted by the current situation. I didn't believe uh, Putin would invade. Uh, and I'm still, and he was saying this like a few days ago, I'm not really sure exactly what to make of it, what the rationale is. But I think we can dismiss some things that are popular, and you've referenced them already. Um, one is the idea that Putin is just mad, uh, just power crazed madman, you know, uh, the new Hitler, or even worse than new Hitler, that he's just a you know, slavering beast just waiting to, waiting to gobble, gobble up the whole of Eastern Europe. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, just a, a way of actually just trying to, as you say, sort of psychologize the situation to make it seem like it's an individual uh, bad behavior. Another argument is that, well, Putin was once a KGB agent and what he's trying to do is re recreate the Soviet Union or reintroduce communism to Russia or whatever. 
which I think is just nonsense because after all, just quite recently he was lambasting the Bolsheviks for giving too much autonomy to the uh, national minorities of the Soviet Union. So I think we actually have to say that it's something to do with the imperialist system, which you mentioned. Another argument I think we should just raise briefly is the argument you often hear on the left or in liberal circles about people trying to defend what Putin's doing um, or more sort of, you know, not exactly having the right position because they say the enemy is my enemy is my friend and they go on that logic. Anyone who stand up to the United States is going to be a friend of ours, which I think you have to say is a pretty bloody opportunistic and mm. bankrupt and amoral approach to politics. It leads you to embrace all sorts of monstrous dictators, whether it's Putin or Syria's Assad or whoever. Then there are the open, what are sometimes called tankies or campus, people who basically believe the world is divided between, you know, the, the socialist progressive world led by Russia and China and the imperialist capitalist world led by America. Um, who believe that you have to basically embrace Putin, uh, that Putin is, you know, a world hero, um, and that, you know, it's the job of socialists to, to defend him. And you know, sometimes hear kind of weaker variants of this argument that Russia is simply responding to a Western encirclement that's been backed into a corner. Uh, the NATO is planning further aggressive action against Russia. It's preparing to invade Russia. Uh, it's going to, um, uh, and, and so the argument goes there that Russia simply wants to build up a, a buffer zone of countries, uh, you know, to pr protect it from the West. This is understandable from the kind of Russian point of view. Mm. Now, the fact that Putin uh, is actually being backed now by a whole section of the, the far right, including people like Fox's uh, Tucker Carlson, doesn't seem to kind of stop these people from you know, holding up uh, Putin as a hero. Uh, so I think this kind of shows you the dead end of that kind of politics. So I think... These kind of arguments just uh, essentially let Putin off the hook and are insult in fact to the Ukrainian resistance. I think the best way to understand the situation is to look at the workings of imperialism. Imperialist countries invade weaker nations and try to impose their rule over them. That's been the case for, you know, a hundred years. Uh, Russian revolutionary Lenin argued that advanced capitalism was racked by conflict between the major powers. Each was eager to grab a bigger share of world markets and power. And this arose not from, you know, the needs of psychologies of particular leaders, but a basic competitive dog-eat-dog -dog dynamic of capitalism. So today, I think what we see is Russia is a relatively weak imperialist. It's coming from well down the global pecking order. Its main leverage is not economic, like China's, but military. So it's behaving aggressively and militarily, because that's the way lower-order imperialists try to hoist themselves onto the world stage, currently dominated by stronger imperialists. Russia looks at Ukraine as imperial prey. The country has got significant mineral resources, wheat, a relatively sophisticated arms industry. And although Russia may not want to install an occupation army permanently, but it can convert it into a Russian satellite, that would be an ideal outcome. Now, the America and NATO, of course, kind of throw up their hands in horror uh, and uh, attack uh, Putin for you know, being an aggressive imperialist uh, monster. But the only reason why they appear to be behaving defensively is because America and its allies already controls large swathes of the world. And its economic and financial power means it can bring other nations to heel, even without mobilizing its military, although, of course, it often does that as well. Mm. It's interesting um, in terms of the reporting of the situation that they that there is much more use of the term imperialism in regards to Russia. Mm. And that it's never used in regards to US activities like the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan. It's not like, oh, here we go. Um, you know, here's some US imperialism. They, there's always another 
explanation, but here they can. There's sort of a Cold War hangover of saying there's still this Russian imperialism like the Soviet Union before it. Um, so, yeah, I think understanding what imperialism actually is is useful. Mm. What about um, what about some of the actual timing of this, though, like in terms of the the balance of global politics at this moment? Yeah, I think this is uh, important to go over because it helps to flesh out some of the stuff I just went through. I think if you see the world as if you like a, a big uh, imperialist, uh, like junkyard dogs fighting in a, in, a, in a scrapyard, you know, fighting for, uh, you know, fighting over territory or fighting over food or whatever, you can begin to understand how the likes of Putin and Biden see the world. Essentially, when Putin looks at the world, he looks at the way that American imperialism has suffered a couple of defeats, first of all, Afghanistan, and then Iraq. And then it's ignominious withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. Uh, Putin could look at America, the social and political turmoil after four years of Trump, uh, the Trumpification of the Republican Party, the possibility, in fact, Republicans may be coming back swinging at the midterms. Potentially, Trump could even be the next president. You can look at the ongoing pandemic, the death toll of well over a million in America, uh, and Putin probably thought that Biden would be distracted by other things with no fight for no stomach for a fight. And then there was, I think, Putin's idea that that America would not be able to rally the other European NATO member states to fight, particularly Germany. Europe relies for Russia on 40% of its energy needs. Germany is a big investor in Russia. And so I think Putin probably thought that the European NATO member states would not be signing up for a, a fight against uh, against Russia. Um, I think you would also believe that the US in particular is mostly focused on China, uh, while explaining, in fact, why um, Putin met Xi Jinping uh, just at the time of the um, Winter Olympics uh, and essentially uh, signed a kind of a, a peace, you know, not a peace pact, but a friendship uh, sort of uh, arrangement uh, where they said they're friends without limits. And so Putin is obviously hoping he can uh, operate uh, with China's support in his invasion of Ukraine. I think there are other couple of things to do with the military balance of forces that Putin looked at, thinking that Ukraine would not be strong enough to put up a fight. Uh, it is, after all, a smaller country, a weaker country. Uh, its GDP is only probably about a quarter of Russia's. Uh, and in the last military conflict between them in 2014, uh, the, Russia, the Russian army smashed the Ukrainian army in, in Donbass. Um, I think the final thing is that, uh, which is a consequence, is that Putin probably thought that invasion was going to be short, that the Ukrainian armed forces would collapse uh, and uh, Russia would be in Kiev in, in three or four days. Um, as we know, of course, a lot of these things have now been proven wrong. Uh, the Ukrainian resistance has fought stronger than anticipated. The Russian army has been weaker. The United States has been able to rally its allies much more successfully than perhaps you might have predicted. And so Russia is now stuck, bogged down in a war, already three weeks old, potentially going on for many more weeks. Mm. And now, what was it? Biden just announced $60 billion US um, dollars of arms support to Ukraine, which just pr will prolong this situation. Our um, there's a lot of talk then, okay, about, well, here's the situation that we're in. And what if we were in charge of things, what would the socialist demands be about how we can, you know, what would be how we respond to this? 
Well, I think the first and most obvious thing, and I think there'd be no disagreement in most quarters with this, is that Russia should get the hell out of Ukraine. Russia is an imperialist nation, has just invaded a much smaller and weaker country. Uh, and the leaders, the Putin, open expressing the intention to dissolve Ukraine as an independent nation, to deny its existence. And then, of course, the Russian army is cut, killing thousands of people, including civilians, destroying hospitals, other vital infrastructure, and threatening possibly to escalate it to a still wider war, possibly drawing other countries like Belarus, which, of course, is now becoming a nuclear state. Uh, and so it has a prospect of uh, escalating to a, uh, a continental-wide uh, uh, conflict, which, of course, would have disastrous consequences. So we say Russia get out of Ukraine. And as a consequence of that, we say we're for a military victory of the Ukrainian resistance. Ukrainian people have the right to resist, the right to engage in national defense. We say a defeat for Russian imperialism in Ukraine is a setback for imperialism everywhere, not just the Russian variety, but American, Chinese, and Australian too. We say that it would be a, a Russian defeat would be a blow to any big power that thinks it can use its military might to have its way in the world. I think that's important to emphasize because a Russian defeat would not just be a straightforward American or NATO victory. I think it would give people the confidence in other situations of imperialist invasion, including by America, that they have the right to resist as well. Mm. And that what follows from that, I think, is NATO's got to go. NATO's a military bloc aimed squarely at Russia. It's the strongest armed camp in Europe, indeed the world. It exists for one purpose only, which is to fight wars that are threatened to do so. So it was originally set up on the basis of combating communist takeover of Europe, communist tyranny and so forth. But yet when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, NATO didn't collapse. So there's a reason it's kept going, and that's because it's an extension of American military power in Europe. Uh, the big European powers welcome it, and it's all about projecting American and European power across the whole of Eurasian landmass. But having said all that, well, not having said it, but I think another thing that follows from this uh, is we need to oppose Western sanctions on Russia for a couple of reasons. First, because these sanctions only serve to give legitimacy to Western war aims. Uh, they're only escalating the conflict, justifying Western intervention, but also because they're a very cruel policy. Essentially, the project of sanctions is to destroy the Russian economy, drive down Russian living standards, drive the Russian working class down into such misery and poverty and wretchedness they feel no alternative but to rise up and overthrow their governments. So in other words, sanctions are just simply a way of the, you know, the United States uh, fighting Putin to the bones of the last Russian worker, which is extremely cruel, heartless uh, and obscene policy. The other thing that's happened out of the current war is that the NATO governments are taking advantage of the Russian invasion to ramp up their military spending, Germany in particular, which uh, over many decades has kept a fairly small military budget because there's widespread public opposition, obviously because it's history in the 20th century, to a very militaristic expansionary policy. And so what the German government has done, uh, and to eternal shame, the Greens and the SPD who are in government, as the Social Democrats, not the German Labour Party, they're now doubling military spending in Germany, adopting a much more aggressive posture. Two more things I'd say. Open borders to all refugees in Europe, all Ukrainians, including international students, but also all those fleeing wars, including those from countries wrecked by the West. And finally, cancellation of Ukraine debts to the IMF and Western banks. Every year, 10% of Ukraine's GDP goes to interest payments to the IMF and Western banks for loans taken out over the last couple of decades. That is money paid by Ukrainian workers and farmers to the bloodsuckers of London, New York, and Geneva. So if the West says it wants to help Ukraine, probably the best thing they can do right now is to take that debt burden off the people.
yeah, if if they were genuine about hands off Ukraine, that exactly. would be a pretty obvious policy. Just wanted to go back to the NATO th- question because I think there might be younger listeners who sort of NATO hasn't really been a feature of their uh, political experience, so or yeah, um, political life as much. But it's been a big part of this discussion. So the idea of NATO expansionism, what is NATO? What, what was it founded for? Can you talk a little bit more about the context and the history of of NATO? Sure. Yeah. Well, look. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was founded by the United States and its military allies to secure the regions of influence they'd won in World War II. So if you look at the map of Europe in World War II, you see uh, Germany, obviously, the main power in Central Europe, being devastated by its defeat. Uh, you see the, the uh, Soviet Union, uh, ha- its armies having uh, occupied militarily, driven the Germans out of a whole slab of Central and Eastern Europe. The West, for its part, its armies were dominant in, in France, in uh, Italy, uh, uh, and several other countries. Uh, and essentially, the two sides did a deal. That Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, uh, and Stalin got together at the end of World War II, uh, drew uh, a line on the map of Europe. And uh, America said, we'll take this half, and Russia said, we'll take that half. And so what NATO did was to enshrine militarily the Western control, sorry, the West control of Western Europe. Uh, and the so-called Iron Curtain divided the spheres of influence between the US on one side and Russia on the other. And NATO essentially was a military means to patrol that border. What that did was a couple of things. First of all, it kind of froze the spheres of influence uh, that was established after World War II, uh, regardless of subsequent developments. So it meant that the United States maintained a significant military bases in Western Europe for decades, uh, and likewise, of course, Russia did it in Eastern Europe. Uh, but what this also, with, and that kind of meant that with the nuclear deterrent, the whole situation was a balance of terror. Uh, and so people, both West and East, were living under the shadow of the atomic cloud. Uh, and though that was, you know, that a possibility that nuclear war would break out was, was essentially, um, uh, promoted by NATO. But what NATO control of Western Europe also did was to allow the United States to move its armies elsewhere to pursue wars in places like Vietnam, uh, to send military aid to dictators in Asia and the Philippines, uh, in Central America, uh, in Africa and so forth. Uh, knowing that the, the, the area that mattered most to America, which essentially was Europe, was secure. That is, the West control was, was, was secured by NATO. Um, What's happened since, of course, is with the Soviet Union collapsing in 1991, everything's thrown up in the air. Basically, the Warsaw Pact disintegrates, which is the Russian military bloc. Uh, Russian power shrinks dramatically. Uh, they lose a whole number of their uh, previous uh, republics, which are part of the Soviet Union. Uh, and Russia is sort of loses that quarter of its territory. What happens is America, which in a way the real rationale should have been that NATO should go out of existence because the Russia is now smashed. America basically uses an opportunity to shift NATO eastwards. Uh, and over a period of uh, the following 10 to 15 years, uh, about another 11 uh, nations and four former, former Soviet republics uh, join, up with, um, uh, join up with NATO. So this is quite a controversial issue because a lot of people look at NATO's eastern uh, extension as saying, well, that goes to show why 
Putin's justified in feeling nervous. That goes to show why Putin needs to be military expansionary to stop NATO. Now, much as we may hate NATO and all its works, I don't believe we should go with that argument. I think I have to say that what we're seeing is two imperialist blocks. We're seeing a stronger imperialist block and a weaker imperialist block coming into conflict with each other. Um, the US does not want to go to war with Russia, partly because it believes it might escalate to a much more disastrous nuclear war, but also because its main focus is China. They can just contain Russia, possibly involving pressure to make Ukraine to make some compromises, then the US can switch back to what is still the main game, containing China's rise in what is the most dynamic area of the world economy, the Indo-Pacific. So what, what's going on in Europe, that is, uh, one imperialist power, which has expanded from a position of strength over the last 20 years, the United States, is coming into conflict with a revived imperialist project coming from a position of weakness, which is Russia. So a clash is inevitable. NATO is not prepared to share power with Russia in Europe. And so, as I say, a conflict between the two sides is inevitable. But as I just said, um, that doesn't mean uh, at the moment that world war is imminent for the reasons that I said that the United States is still primarily focused on China and doesn't want to see a continental-wide war in Europe. Not that that can be ruled out, though. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I want to focus on a bit more on the Western response and US imperialism, and there's a couple of good articles in Red Flag about the hypocrisy of some of the Western side's statements about the situation, including Biden but also others, you know, there's a lot of talk about what we've really got to defend Ukrainian sovereignty. Invasion is bad. Um, no one should be allowed to invade a sovereign country. Um, and they say this without any kind of, um, yeah, hubris. Um, what is your, what are your thoughts about some of the hypocrisy of that? Why, what, what are some examples of why these statements are so outrageous? Yeah. You can't help but chuckle when you hear, or groan maybe, when you hear Joe mm. Biden calling Putin a war criminal as he did a couple of days ago. Yeah. And my instant response is try looking in the mirror, Joe Biden. He, this is the ultimate Washington insider yeah. who has been a congressman since the 1990s, who has overseen or supported every American war in the past three decades. So if we're talking about a war criminal, you know, look at what America, look at what Joe Biden's agreed to in America's name in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. The war crimes in those in those countries. The stories we're still seeing coming out today in the case of um, uh, the SAS uh, Australia's SAS soldier about the sort of things he was doing. I forget his name. Temporary Ben Roberts. Yeah. Uh, is it Ben Roberts? Yeah. The trial. Yeah. 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 Uh, about uh, the kind of war crimes of Western forces. So if they talk about human rights uh, and national sovereignty. They certainly didn't pay that uh, respect to national sovereignty of Iraq and Afghanistan over 20 years, or indeed any of the other countries they've invaded or intervened in the past uh, half century. They talk about democracy and the need for, you know, the West is, they're kind of the way that Joe Biden and, and Trump, for that matter, said, look, the West is, if you like, the home of democracy. They're standing up to autocrats like Xi Jinping and, and, and Putin. But in fact, actually, you've only got to look at the US itself to see it's an undemocratic farce. Simply to be a congressman, you've got to be a multi-millionaire. To be president, you've got to be even like a multi-multi-millionaire or at least have the support of several billionaires to fund, fund your campaign. You need a campaign fund of millions upon millions of dollars to get anywhere in American politics. Let aside the kind of uh, appalling things like the Supreme Court, about the way in which the presidential election is stacked in favour of the smaller, uh, more conservative states, 
uh, about the way the cops you know, rampage around a place murdering African-Americans without check, as we saw just uh, last week. So, you know, if we talk about America being a, a shining example of Western democracy, we'll spare us from that. What, what respect does America have for smaller and oppressed nations? They talk about Ukraine being trodden down by the Russian boot, which, which it is. But why did they ever say boo about Israel when it crushes Palestinian statehood? You know, when do they ever stand up for Palestine? When do they ever hold up the example of Palestinian resistance fighters like they do Ukrainian resistance mm. fighters, saying what heroes they are? Never see a word of that, do we? No. The, yeah, I mean, the, the classic meme that is going around is the side-by-side Ukrainian with the um, Molotov cocktail being a hero and the Palestinian similarly being labelled a terrorist. Um, yeah. Pretty obvious comparison. So in terms of what people are calling for, one of the things that's pretty terrifying is um, that uh, there's a lot of calls, there's a lot of sympathy for the argument that seems to be that the US and the Western allies should be doing more militarily, um, including even the idea of a no-fly zone. doesn't look like that's going to happen, but... um, can you just say something quickly about that? Because I feel like people also don't necessarily know what that implies and why it would be terrible. Yeah, I think I think we should distinguish between two sets of responses. There's one response, which is the case for a lot of people who look at the situation in horror and think something's got to be done, which, if you like, has an understandable, admirable moral core to it, yeah. which is that big power should not be able to obliterate hospitals with the people inside. They should not be able to bomb theatres with people sheltering in, in, in bomb shelters in the basements. They should not be able to kill people lining up in the streets, uh, civilians. So I think the idea that something has to be done, if you like, is driven by, for, for the majority of people, driven by an admirable human, humanist and humane sentiment. But the, what this in reality means, given we can't just conjure up some kind of peaceful way, if you like, of just you know, repelling the Russian forces, is that it means you look to governments to do it. As I've just seen, all the bloody governments that people ask to do these things are all horrible imperialist governments themselves. And so these people, when they talk about doing something, when, for example, the entire Congress, when they watch uh, Zelensky on the big screen speaking to them, say something's got to be done, the, the audience all cheer you know, yeah. uh, enormously, what they mean is basically uh, bringing on an escalation of war. What they mean by that, by things like a no-fly zone, is actually saying we are prepared to see NATO aircraft shooting down Russian aircraft over Ukraine, knowing that could potentially bring on World War III. So to say this without a moment's consideration for the enormous human cost that that would entail. And so I think we just say those people are bloodthirsty monsters. They are willing essentially to use the Ukraine war to justify the deaths potentially of millions of people, uh, which could entail if a, a nuclear war breaks out in Europe. If not, I mean, God forbid, even further devastation for the rest of the globe as well. Mm. And so I think I have to see the sentiments of the people who are talking, you know, the you know, various f- figures and the Democrats and Republicans and whatever, and all the kind of the militaristic think tanks in, in Washington and London and Berlin or whatever, saying, yes, yes, we really need to look at sending, establishing a no-fly zone. That's what that means. It means potentially World War Three, And so that's, that's the main reason I think we should be opposed to it. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have our way of stopping the war. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that then. Obviously, it's an extremely dangerous situation. Historically, we've seen similar examples of um, conflicts beginning in one country and escalating rapidly. What are the potential outcomes, I mean, in terms of uh, resistance to war, there's obviously some positive signs within Russia and in Ukraine, but what are some of the alternatives for how this situation could end? Are any of them positive? Yeah. Well, I think, the, as I just said just then, I think the situation is very dangerous, uh, has a potential to escalate. It's not necessary that the two big imperialist powers, America and Russia, want to go to war with each other. It's not the case that Germany or Britain want to go to war over Ukraine. They don't. Um, but imperialism has a way of escalating beyond the decisions of the individual forces involved. So, for example, in 1914, Germany, Britain, there was obviously military tensions between them. Did they want to go to war over Sarajevo, over the Balkans? Not necessarily, but one essentially one thing led to another. So in July, June, July 1914, all the governments were saying, essentially, we should be, uh, we're not preparing for war. And I think it was true. They weren't necessarily preparing for war. They did not want to bring a war with over that summer. And then one situation leads to another. One side, you know, the assassination. Then, you know, one side comes in and says, we have to back our ally. Then the other side comes and says, we have to back our ally. And then they, in turn, have peace treaties with other nations who have to come and back them. And so the situation is such that the whole thing could get out of control. And that's the, that's the bigger danger right now, leaving aside the devastation caused to the Ukrainian people, uh, the building up of imperialist tension. One power, if you like, oversteps what is regarded as acceptable by the other power, mm. unleash a, a wider conflict. In terms of the outcomes... I have to say, if Russia triumphs, that would be bad for the world. I've already mentioned this. I said, it'll, number one, it'll seek to justify imperialist invasions by either imperialist. It'll justify more military arming by uh, the West. Uh, and when America invades another country, Russia will be able to point out uh, and say, look, we, you know, we told you so. So it will just simply be um, uh, a, uh, a situation where imperialist invasion seems to be vindicated. If Russia is defeated, that will certainly help because it will send a message that imperialist attacks on weaker countries can be repelled. But I think we need to be clear what we mean by Russia being defeated. We want to see Russia militarily defeated. We want to see the invasion forces driven out of Ukraine. But that doesn't mean a political defence of the status quo in Ukraine. It doesn't mean a political defence of the Zelensky government or the Ukrainian oligarchs with a real power in the country. It's just amazing the way the Western media go on about it. And Zelensky is suddenly this kind of hero. Uh, we don't say a word about the corruption in Ukraine. We don't say a word about the hor horrific uh, state of the situation of society, the inequality, the hardship, the gangsterism of the oligarchs. Uh, it's all disappeared. Well, actually, we're not prepared to see that just disappear. There needs to be a fight actually driven not by the Zelensky government, but by a popular resistance movement. We want a popular resistance of ordinary workers, men and women taking up arms, where the officers are elected, not the military top brass taking control of things and answering only to a small undemocratic elite. And we want to see a resistance movement that not just takes up arms against the Russian soldiers, but also appeals to them, which might sort of sound a bit counterintuitive. How can you be sort of shooting people, but also appealing to them? Well, there's a long tradition of this. 
uh, in uh, anti-war struggles around the world, where soldiers appeal to who, after all, are in most cases conscripts drafted unwillingly into this war on the Russian side, to appeal to them to lay down their weapons and refuse their officers' orders. And that means we appeal also for the Russian soldiers to refuse to fight, to mutiny, to fraternize the Ukrainian civilians. Because there's a real story here. You know, despite the idea that kind of just, you know, soldiers are just this automatons, you know, sent in like robots to fight. Few Russian soldiers were actually told, even in fact, actually, as they got on the trucks, what they were going to be doing. Most of them actually thought they were going to be undertaking exercises. When they realized they're being used to fight Ukrainians, with whom many Russians have long-standing historical and cultural connections, they were absolutely shocked. And so we've seen many stories now of soldiers just refusing to fight, going on go slows, abandoning their vehicles and tanks and just walking away. So we want the Ukrainian resistance as much as possible to encourage that tendency by appealing to them to lay down their arms, to appealing on the basis of being fellow workers, of saying, look, you know, your officers do not have your interests at heart, that this is an imperialist invasion, you should not be participating in it. And that also means, of course, by extension, support for the anti-war movement in Russia. We just saw that example, that uh, TV broadcaster holding up the placard behind the uh, news broadcast the other day. World attention to it. If only the same world attention was given to every anti-war protester everywhere around the world, that'd be great to see. But not just those individuals. The thousands have been protesting. Uh, enormously brave people standing up to the threat of 15 years in jail. 14,000 people have already been arrested by the police authorities in Russia just for protesting in the streets peacefully. So it's important to make clear, especially to Ukrainians, that not all Russians support their government and also us in the West, that you, Russia cannot just be understood as a block of people, all of whom support Putin. We see these stories. You hear stories about Russians coming into shops in the West, being refused service. You hear the stories about things like you know, Tchaikovsky concerts being cancelled. This whole, like, what you might call Russophobia, the idea that all Russians, by virtue of the passport they hold, are somehow complicit in this war. Well, I think the Russian anti-war movement is so useful because it demonstrates so practically the fact that there is a strong resistance inside Russia to what their leaders are doing. Mm. And I think, as the sanctions bite harder, I think that's only going to escalate. You know, the, the kind of macabre calculation that the advocates of sanctions, those who have been implementing the sanctions have, which is will lead to more hardship, is probably true. And now it could lead to people actually rallying behind Putin, but it could also lead to people coming out in bigger numbers against the war. Uh, and what we all want to see ultimately, obviously, is an anti-war movement in Russia that can grow and become powerful enough to overthrow the Putin regime. But, and I'll finish here, of course, we don't just want to see an anti-war movement in Russia. We want to see an anti-war movement in the West because... Ukraine, if you like, is a bit of, if you like, a side, what do you call it, a, um, a sidestep or a bit of a, possibly even a distraction for the United States. Because particularly as far as Australian government is concerned, and the US government also, uh, I think, Ukraine is a bit of a distraction for what the main game is. The main game actually is not Russia. It's China. So it's China's expansion in the Indo-Pacific, Australia. You see Scott Morrison. He wants to say all the time, why isn't China condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Why isn't China doing this? Why isn't China doing that? For him, really, bloody Ukraine is irrelevant. The only thing it comes down to, banging the drum for war with China, for demonizing China. Now, we've, of course, got no time for the Chinese regime. But the way in which this is being used, if you like, is by the Morrison government in particular to point out, you know, the evils of China, to get us to focus on China. So an anti-war movement is so important now, not just in solidarity with all people fighting war around the world, 
but also to prepare our own population for the way in which we're being inured, uh, prepared, softened up uh, for war. So just see the expansion of Australian military, the nuclear submarines, the new tanks, uh, Peter Dutton's rhetoric. You can just see the way in which the Australian population is being uh, softened up for war with China. And the Morrison government and the Biden government are essentially using Russia's attack on Ukraine as if you like a sort of a, a draft for the real project. The real project is going to be war with China. Yep. And which is why the classic um, opposing your own government strategy is part of what we want to talk about um, as socialists as well. And on Red Flag Radio, I guess it's a recurring theme of a lot of our discussions. Um, Thank you, Tom. There's a lot there to digest. I hope people will digest it and um, share the episode if you think that other people um, might benefit from hearing some of these different perspectives. Um, we maybe have you back if, as things uh, develop to analyse what's going on, if you're willing to do that, Tom. Thanks, Ross. It's a pleasure. And thanks, Liam, for um, being on the dials as usual. Pleasure and absorbing it and digesting it over here. And um, <laughs> yeah. I will just chip in to say there's, you know, people, we've got the Marxism conference coming up and there's, uh, people should check out the schedule on the, uh, the program of the conference. There's a couple of sessions now focused to these questions. And of course, there's ongoing coverage in, in Red Flag paper. Yep, definitely get your ticket to Marxism in every major city in Australia at the marxismconference.org website. Yep, that was a very timely reminder. Thanks, Liam. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. Mm-hmm.